let us turn for our reading in God's Word this evening to Peter's second letter, reading chapter 1 and verse 1 through into chapter 2 and verse 10. It is a difficult portion of God's Word to break up for our purposes tonight because the clause that we're going to look at is understood in the light of all that has gone before, and so it makes some sense to read this lengthy passage, and I do so remembering that in our Reformed view of worship that the reading of God's Word is not merely a means to an end, it is an end in itself. We read God's words. Paul advised Timothy, his apostolic delegate, to give himself to the public reading of the Scriptures, and so we come to this portion tonight, and um, to give a little illustration of what I'm trying to do this evening, God being my helper, those of you who have played golf will know what it is like to lose a ball in the rough and to try and find the ball, to retrieve the ball, and to claim the ball afresh. I say that because uh, while we're in the UK, the last two weeks I endeavored to play a round of golf for the first time in 10 years. And the picture is very fresh in my mind of losing a ball in the rough, scooping it out with a club. Yes, this is my ball. And I trust that uh, by the time we leave God's house tonight, we'll be able to say with firm assurance, yes, this is my assurance. And I'll go forward clinging to that. So let us hear God's word then. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world through or because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed, was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, this is our text for this evening, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. May God bless this reading of his word. We thank you for these words. As Peter said, you've given us everything that we may know, that we have instruction to live a godly life. And Lord, as he listed all of these things for us to strive for, that we may be more like you. And Lord, may we seek these things, not for our glory, but for your glory, that others may be drawn to your kingdom, that others may come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they may have this great hope and promise. And Lord, we pray that you'll be with Dr. Trumper, and speak through him your truths, that we may be filled with your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you. The title of our message this evening is The Lord's Know-How. 
And as I've mentioned, the focus of our attention this evening is in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And we'll be looking at this clause in the context of all that has gone before in the run-up to this verse. It is with some great sense of sensitivity this evening that I come to this text, but I feel burdened to do so. The last time I preached from this pulpit, we dealt together with the subject of the sanctity of human life. And one of the major observations we made in that sermon was that the sanctity of human life is not simply something that affects the world out there, but affects us in the church as well. And in that sermon, we were focusing mainly, but not absolutely, on the issue of abortion and putting it in the context of what is going on in our society today. But of course, our community was struck a month ago tomorrow by a tragedy that shocked us all. And I want us then for our encouragement tonight to be strengthened in God as we go forward in the aftermath of what happened a month ago. And so I feel compelled, I trust graciously and compassionately to deal with this text in the light of events which I am sure have raised a whole amount of questions in the minds and hearts of God's people. And most of us here, I venture to guess, are Northern European in origin. I am Northern European in origin. And we share in common certain similarities, and one of the things we share in common is that we do not necessarily wear our hearts on our sleeves. We do not necessarily put in public the questions that we have, the concerns that we have. And so, God being my helper, I want us to strengthen each other in God in the light of what has happened in our community so that we may have confidence in the grace of God to carry us through whatever we face in life. For we have this wonderful declaration that the Lord is able to rescue the godly from their trials. And so I take the opportunity to strengthen us in God in three ways. First of all, spiritually. The dust may be settling for us. I can guarantee it, and you can guarantee it, that it has not begun to settle for those who are most affected by what happened. But before we move on with our lives, we take hold of the providence of God as a teaching opportunity to learn what we can, the best way we can, so that we can be more informed, more instructed, more confident in the grace of God to go forward in the days that are to come. 
And in that context, we have great help from the letters of Peter. The first letter, he's dealing with suffering. He's dealing with the difficulties, the trials, the troubles of God's people. Listen to what he says. The readers in 1 Peter are elect exiles of the dispersion, grieved by various trials, enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, and yet they have the promise that if they suffered for righteousness' sake, they would be blessed. So Peter writes his first letter then with this intent, that God's people may not give up in the day of trial, but may prove themselves, in Paul's words, to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves them. And thus, when we come into 2 Peter, suffering remains in the context as Peter calls his readers to await for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to run ahead of God, but to trust that God will come and resolve this world with all its fallenness as we find it. And so I seek then not to condemn anybody tonight. I seek then not to hurt anybody or to pick off scabs which are only beginning to form, but to affirm, and I think it's important for us to affirm, the sufficiency of God's grace to carry His people through life until we enter into the kingdom of heaven at the time and place of His appointment and not of ours. And so I want us to speak of this text and to draw strength spiritually from it. And then I also want to speak of this text and draw strength biblically from it. Says one commentator, Alexander Nisbet, this is the latter will of a dying apostle and martyr of Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostle Peter who's writing about suffering knows what he is talking about. He is speaking of the reality of the Christian life with all the heartaches, the trials, the troubles that God's people have, God's people know, and with which we are becoming increasingly acquainted as our context deteriorates into the sort of context in which Peter's readers were found. And so we look then at this passage tonight with this understanding that Peter's point and the point of this service is that we should finish our race strongly. It is so that we might stand firm in the grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ and not waver in that grace. Notice with me how 1 Peter ends, chapter 5 and verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then you turn over a page and you come into 2 Peter 1 and these marvelous words in chapter 1 and verse 3. Let us cling hold to them, brother and sister. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so what is our responsibility then as believers? Our responsibility as believers is to fill our minds with the truth of God's word. You see, we live in a world and we live in a context and we live our own private lives where day by day by day by day, Satan is feeding lies into our thinking, feeding lies into our thinking. And the masterful way in which he does that is that we might not even know that we are being lied to even while he is lying to us. And I can look back in my own life and see whole chapters, especially as a young man, in which Satan was lying to me and I did not know he was lying to me. And I was operating off his lies, not off the word of God. And so we continually need to bring these inner voices back to the word of God and say, what says the word of God? In my trials, in my troubles, who am I listening to? Am I listening to the word of God, drawing from God his perspective on my trials and troubles? Or those inner voices which may be taking me away from God, away from his word, away from his will. And so thirdly, as we come to this text, we want to look at it practically and draw strength in a practical sense. You see, this is where we may fall down. We are in a church where we are well fed the word of God. And we are part of a theological community we may call the Reformed faith or the Reformed truth, or the Reformed tradition, the intelligentsia of the Christian church. We come around the Word of God, we bring our Bibles to worship, we open the Word of God, we hear a sermon preached, and it's very easy for us to have our, soul, uh, our minds so packed with the Word of God, but to have this disconnect between what we receive into our minds and how we work it out in our hearts, such that when we are faced with our trials and troubles, it's not that we haven't been taught good sermons. It's not that we've not had good Sunday school teachers and youth leaders. It's because we are not steeped in the practical exercise of taking hold of sermons, of taking hold of Sunday school lessons, of taking hold of the whole array of DVDs, internet output of biblical teaching, and applying them to my life in my situation, where I am at, faced and oppressed by Satan. So we're looking at this text practically. There may, of course, and I need to say this, there may, of course, be extenuating circumstances explaining why a believer would take their own life. But we must also say that suicide typically occurs in the life of a believer, not through a lack of knowledge, but through a failure in the application of that knowledge in the crucial moments of life. So with this in mind, notes the text tells us three things we are to know, three things we are to apply, to know and to apply. And the first thing is this, the Lord knows 
our standing. Listen to this clause. The Lord knows how to rescue who? The godly. Well, remembering and applying this truth to ourselves is crucial. That the Lord knows whether we're in the category of the godly or the ungodly. And he promises us here through his servant Peter that if we are in the category of the godly, he's going to rescue us. He doesn't make that promise to the ungodly. So we need to be clear then what it is to be godly and what it is to be ungodly and to understand which category we are in tonight. Who are the godly? And are we the godly? Well, the godly are those of whom several things are true. First of all, that the existence of God in our lives is central. Our lives revolve around God. We know and revere him as the almighty maker of heaven and earth. That's what we confess, isn't it, in the Apostles' Creed. And we are those who have undergone a Copernican revolution in our lives. You know the scientist Nicholas Copernicus. The world was believing that the sun revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus came along and said, well, actually, the earth revolves around the sun. And the same thing has gone on in the life of a person who's left the category of the ungodly, gone into the category of the godly. There was a time when we thought the whole world, the whole existence revolved around me. And then by the grace of God, we came to discover, no, actually, my life is to revolve around God. And so, by the grace of God, we entered the category of the godly. The existence of God became central. But something else happened. The gospel of God became fundamental. You see, theism is not enough for our security and for our joy. We must know God, not simply in an abstract way. We must know him personally through Christ. And so, notice how Peter here begins his letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying every Christian has an equal standing with God by the righteousness of our God and Savior. So in the life of the godly, the existence of God is central, the gospel of God is fundamental, and thirdly, the knowledge of God is strengthening. Hence, our greeting this evening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or as it says here, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So then, if tonight we recognize that we are, by the grace of God, in the category of the godly, this is what we hang our hat upon. This is what we lay hold of, the Word of God. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials. And see, we can take that into our minds, can't we? But are we practicing that thought when we find our backs against the wall, when we're in a dark pit that we see no way out of? Are we able to say, I cannot feel the truth of that word, but I am going to hang on to that word because it is the word of God. Well, what of the ungodly? Well, to understand them, consider the wording. Here in verse uh, 9, 
Peter doesn't use the word ungodly, but he's already used it at least twice in what has gone before. Rather, he refers to those outside of Christ being unrighteous. Now, to understand these differences, you need to understand what's going on here in the broader context of Scripture. And that's why we read Psalm 1. Because you will notice there in Psalm 1 that there are the three categories of people mentioned. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or the term can mean ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So if we are outside of Christ this evening, the best that the Bible says of us is that we are ungodly. That is to say, we do not have God upon the throne of our lives. We still think the whole world revolves around us. But then the sinner is somebody for whom God is dethroned, but he begins to work that out, or she begins to work that out in everyday life. And so God doesn't matter, his law doesn't matter, and so the sins of mind and heart become more public until, thirdly, Unless we are arrested by the grace of God, we become scoffers, resolutely opposed to God, resolutely opposed to His church, resolutely opposed to anything that smacks of biblical Christianity. So when then Peter says that God can rescue the godly, he speaks by way of contrast of the ungodly, but a certain type of the ungodly, the unrighteous. The person who has gone beyond merely a theoretical opposition to God and is now outworking the principles of unbelief in life. So the ungodly then has no right to claim the Lord's rescue unless they turn to the Lord. Left to themselves, they boast they need of no help from God. They are quite content to make their way through life. And I venture to suggest, in fact, I'm anticipating, some here thinking tonight, well, how come in our community? And how come it's possible in the global Christian church And how come it has been possible in the history of the Christian church for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to take their own life, but the ungodly not to? And some, on the basis of that question, will discard the Christian faith and move on. So it's important then to say why this is the case. Let me give you four possible reasons. First of all, God has instilled hope in the constitution of every human being, not simply Christians. Secondly, God supports the ungodly even as they rebel against him. Thirdly, the devil gladly leaves the ungodly alone in their false peace. Fourthly, God, says Peter, is keeping the unrighteous, quote-unquote, under punishment until the day of judgment. So let me say to you tonight, if you're outside of Christ and you are tempted, maybe even actually using what has happened as an excuse not 
to believe in Jesus Christ. I would appeal to you not to be so foolish. You are content in your unbelief because even though you do not know it, you are under the grip of Satan. That's your contentment. And when the gospel call goes forth, you are never called to look to this Christian or that Christian or the other Christian for your salvation. You were called to look to one alone, to Jesus Christ. And so secondly, this evening then, we note that the Lord knows our trials. The word can also mean our temptations. In Peter's letter thus far, he has mentioned three trials which afflict believers, and these are just illustrative for us. I want to draw them out of the passage as illustrating some of the things through which Christians pass, which are very testing for us. The first is the corruption of the world, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Peter says that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So the believer then is no longer of the world, even though they remain in the world. And these first century believers then would have been very conscious that they're in the world and also very conscious that they're not of the world. And so in their communities, they rubbed shoulders with those who were without three S's. They were without a standing with God. Oh, their peers had a standing with the world that Christians didn't have, but they didn't have a standing with God. They were without a savior because they were unrepentant. And in their corruption, they rejected the invitation to apply for grace from God. And they were without sanitation because in their sins, the sins of the Roman world, they were not only positionally apart from God, they were morally and ethically unclean. And some of the Lord's people are downhearted that although we have, by the grace of God, escaped the corruption that is in the world by rubbing shoulders with the world day in, day out, because although we're not of the world, we're in the world, it has a depressing influence upon us. Peter says the Lord is able to rescue us from the depression that comes through the corruption of the world. Secondly, there's not only the problem being in the world, there's the problem being in the church. Trials, temptations come from inside the professing church. And so Peter alludes Chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, and verse 1 and forward, to the false teaching that had arisen in the apostles' day. And so he speaks there in verse 16 of cleverly devised myths. The apostles were accused of this. And so Peter defends the fact that they are preaching and teaching the truth. But then when he comes into chapter 2, verse 1 forward, he speaks explicitly of what the Lord's people are facing. So they are fo facing false teaching. And let me just run through the first three verses, and what are they facing? Well, they are facing a false teaching that is guaranteed. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The false teaching was clandestine. It was brought in secretly. The false teaching was destructive. The false teaching was undermining of Christ. The false teaching was appealing, since it led to immorality and fed the natural desires of man. Then the false teaching was exploitative, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This also has an oppressive influence on the people of God. And then thirdly, there's personal distress. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Trials, temptations, they're known in the world, they're known in the church, but they're also known in our own hearts. As an example of the coming destruction, Peter mentions Sodom and Gomorrah and the trial Lot had of living on the fringes of the community. Notice what he says. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He was, quote-unquote, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds he saw and heard. But it is from the case of Lot that we learn how to reason when we are tried. Listen to Peter's logic. If he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. So what must we know and apply to ourselves? The Lord knows our standing. The Lord knows our trials. And of course, in Jesus Christ, we have someone who has come in human flesh, gone before us, lived this life, touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's seen the corruption of the world firsthand. He's seen the false teaching in the professing church firsthand and was crucified for exposing it. No one would have had a soul so distressed by what was seen in the world than the Lord Jesus. Hence we say that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. No one knew that more than him. And we think upon these things when we are tried and tempted. And so thirdly, the Lord knows our rescue. You say, well, my trials, my temptations are not found in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 2. They, brother and sister, are illustrative of what we may go through as the Lord's people. But people's declarations, Peter's declaration stands firm. The Lord is able to rescue the godly. And so the prior narrative supplies us with three means God uses to rescue his people. The first is his divine power, going back to chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Nothing in life, says Peter, should preclude us from fulfilling God's plan for us. Why? Because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And nothing in us precludes God from fulfilling his purposes for our life supremely to make us like Christ. Now it goes against the grain, doesn't it? To contemplate that God is more interested at times in our lives, in our holiness, than in our happiness. And we are living in a world in which the primary importance is placed on happiness, not holiness. And when we get those things back to front, that's when we struggle in the midst of trials and in the midst of temptations. So we take things into our hands and we say in effect that God's resources are insufficient. And I want gently tonight resolutely tonight to say to myself to say to you not so not so 
God can divinely intervene to rescue his people. Isn't that the story of Lot? On the margins of society there in Sodom and Gomorrah, tormented in his soul, greatly distressed. If you told Lot, now listen, a few moments you're going to be rescued by angels from God. He wouldn't have necessarily credited it. But Peter mentions the importance of knowledge. The knowledge of God's glory and excellence, chapter 1, verse 3. The knowledge of his precious and great promises. And so let me say to you tonight, if you have your back against the wall, and the thought has crossed your mind of a, a copycat event, this is your responsibility, dear brother and sister. It's to focus upon God in his glory and in his power and his majesty and his excellence. Isn't this what Corrie ten Boom has said so effectively? There is no pit that is so deep that God is not deeper still. But we may reverse the imagery. Thinking of God in his glory and his greatness, his majesty and his excellence. And can such a majestic, such a glorious, such an all-powerful God find your pit or mine too deep from which to rescue us? But as if the knowledge of God's being is not sufficient to help us in our darkest moments. What does Peter say? He's given us many great and many precious promises. So what do we do with them? Do we just abstract them and say, oh, that's nice. God never forsakes his people. Or do we grab hold of these many great and precious promises and take them to God in prayer, storming the gates of heaven, saying to God, this is what you've said. I'm hanging on here by my fingernails. But this is what you've said. And I am claiming this promise that you will never, never forsake your people. I am claiming this affirmation of the Apostle Peter that God knows, you know how to rescue the godly in their trials. And then secondly, there's divine commissioning, chapter 1, verse 5 forward. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, etc., etc. Time is going, so I'll not detain you with this list of virtues that we are to add to our faith. But we start getting into trouble when we sit back on our faith and say, well, all I need in life is that basic rudimentary faith in Christ wherewith I came to know the Lord Jesus. No, says Peter, you go on. You pursue God. What do you pursue him for? Well, you pursue him for virtue, for knowledge, for self-control, for steadfastness, for godliness, for brotherly affection and love, self-sacrificing love. In other words, we do not live our Christian lives in isolation from one another. You know, when a tragedy happens, we all ask ourselves, well, why didn't this person come to us? Dr. Norm spoke this morning about the beauty of the communion of the saints. Brothers and sisters, we need to be real with each other. Let me say to you, if you're struggling, 
don't do the Northern European thing. I can only speak personally and say my life began to improve. When I gained a little bit of humility to say I can't do this life on my own. I need confidants. And you need them too. And then thirdly, divine examples. Chapter 1, verse 12 forward. Peter lists two of them. He doesn't necessarily intend to, but he does. And the first example is himself. He puts himself forward. His intention is not to say, look at me, I'm the example. But he's become an example, and this is how it happened. You see, he's writing this last will. He's about to be martyred for the faith. And he says, this is what I want you to remember after I'm gone. And then he talks about his death, and he has this beautiful statement in verse 14 of chapter 1, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about John 21 after the resurrection. And he is restored, and Jesus comes to him and says, when you're old, you're not going to be able to walk around freely like you can now. And then John adds, this he spoke about Peter's death by which he would glorify God. And so for 15, 20, perhaps even more years, Peter has been going forward knowing that at the end of his journey he's going to be martyred for the faith. I do wish we would speak about that more than we speak about his denial of the Lord. That having been restored by the Lord, setting his face to live out the rest of his life faithfully, he knows he's going to be martyred at the end of the day. And yet he keeps on keeping on. And the other example is, of course, our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, he mentions it from verse 16 of chapter 1 onwards. The transfiguration and Peter's recollection of the transfiguration. There is Jesus and he's on his way to the abyss of his suffering at the cross. And there he is transfigured before the disciples and they hear the voice from the holy mountain. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he receives this affirmation. It's not an affirmation that Jesus can now float along in some sort of comfort zone. It's an affirmation so that he has the strength to go to the cross and through the cross to save an innumerable company of sinners. And so when we think of our rescue. Yes, we have God's divine power. Yes, we have his commission to add to our faith. But we have some wonderful examples in the Christian church who inspire us to keep on keeping on. Some of us lost a dear friend this week, Dale Visser. Dale Visser worked really hard. He was greatly blessed, and he never forgot it. But for the last few years of his life, he was blind. Finally, he had one of his eyes removed. And in the last elder's visit he received, the next person I will see will be Jesus. I spoke to Dale many times over the 10 years we were together in the church there. 
And he never, never forgot that his blessing came from God. And the massively inspirational thing about his life was this. He could say with the Apostle Paul, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. A man who had more wealth than I could ever calculate, but a man who had a simple faith in Jesus that knew what it was to abound and knew what it was to be abased, who knew what it was to fall about his home, who knew what it was to be weak, to hold on to his wife going into church, and yet to have an evenness of spirit. Look out for those examples that inspire you to keep on keeping on. And so let me close tonight by asking us to review our standing. If you are yet to be found among the godly, an equal standing with us before God is obtainable through faith in Jesus Christ. But if we are among the godly, let us know this, that nothing through which we pass is beyond the Lord's rescue. And do not let Satan, anybody else, any other circumstance tell you otherwise. Secondly, our strength. Yes, practical measures may help. Medicine from the doctors, counseling, hormone treatment, wise decision-making. But it is our responsibility to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord and to utilize that knowledge. Thirdly, our solace, our comfort, a two-way responsibility. If you are in a dark place, don't be too proud to seek the help. And let us offer that help. Let me share with you as I close tonight, trying to be mindful of your time. That for seven years, trying to practice what I'm preaching to you, I was in a very difficult place. I did not know how things would work out. One elder of the church came to me, and don't try guessing which church, where, it's immaterial. But he said this to me, are you bitter against God? I said, why would I be bitter against God? God is the very one who's sustaining me. And during that period, somebody else came to me and said to me, do you feel suicidal? Well, the thought had not crossed my mind. But what interested me about that second question was this, that I knew that that lady who asked me whether I was suicidal had, under the need of hormone treatment, tried to take her life 30 years before. And what I picked up on was this. Not that I was suicidal, I was sorry she felt I would be. 
but that here was a lady who had been right to the brink, spared by the grace of God, seeking to comfort somebody else with the comfort that she herself had received in her dark place. And so I'm saying to you tonight, as I'm saying to myself, if we affirm that we believe in the communion of the saints, let's practice the communion of the saints. Let's not pretend we have it all together. There are people in our communities aching deeply. And they need to know that we are safe people to whom to go. They have a responsibility to utilize the communion of the saints. But we have a responsibility to utilize the communion of the saints so that men and women in dark places can know that they are not alone. And when Satan is lying to them, we bring the word of God to them and we say this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. You may not see the solution. I do not see the solution. But the Lord knows. So we're going to cling to this promise. We're going to claim the promise. We're going to go to God. And we're not going to make drastic, permanent solutions to what in the grand scheme are short-term issues. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we're not sufficient for these things, but your word is sufficient and your grace is sufficient. Follow then your word with your blessing and meet us at our point of need and so meet with us that we'll be a blessing to others around us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name, the witness of your people, that we ask these things. Amen.